Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 13th of November, Andy Brownlee taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Andy took us through the Reformation and modern church periods of church history. Andy's one of the elders and site leaders at Christchurch Manchester. Let's take a listen to the session. Great, so we are going to look at our third period, the Reformation, which is quite a small kind of... Um, period date wise from 1517 to 1648 uh, and really what happens in this period is the rediscovery of the authority of the bible now the reformation was a movement started by martin luther to reform the abuses of the catholic church hence why it's called the reformation to reform the abuses of the catholic church now luther was born in germany in 1483 and, and when he was 22 he got caught in a really bad thunderstorm and he prayed out to St. Anne, because people prayed to saints back then. And he prayed, St. Anne, she was, save me and I'll become a monk. Uh, and he, you know, he stayed true to his word. Uh, she, she, you know, he, he was saved from the storm and he became a monk. Uh, but as a monk, he always felt really unworthy before God. You know, he really, I, I sin and he just, I just can't stop sinning. I feel so unworthy before God. He just always had this feeling. I, and around that time, he kind of talked to his mentor and his mentor encouraged him to do something that was incredibly uncommon um, around that time. Something that very few people did. And that was he started reading the Bible. Uh, you, know, well, you know, everything else has failed. Why don't I read the Bible? And when he was 32, the age of 32, while reading the Bible, Martin Luther had an incredible kind of light bulb moment uh he basically read romans chapter 1 verse 17 which says this for in the gospel the righteousness of god is revealed a righteousness uh a righteousness that is by faith from first to last just as it is written the righteous will live by faith and luther was just like he said i just i felt myself to have been reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise he said when he read those that, that, that ver those verses and basically what happened was he realized justification, being made right with God, was by faith alone, not faith in good works, as the church has been teaching for a thousand years. Two years later, in 1517, the Pope needed more money to build his new big church in Rome, the one that's there right now, St. Peter's Basilica. So he sent a guy called Johann Tetzel around Germany to sell these new things called indulgences. Now, indulgences were basically certificates you could buy, which guaranteed that your sins would be forgiven, that you could go to heaven. You know, that was like a certificate. You'd pay X amount of money, they'd give you a certificate, you stick it on your wall, sins forgiven, going to heaven. That's what an indulgence was. Now, Luther, who was now a theology professor at the University of Wittenberg, Wittenberg in a city in East Germany, he was horrified at this. He's like, what's going on? Like, he was just like, the church has descended to a new low. I mean, basically, it had taken the forgiveness of sins, something that's supposed to be a free gift from Jesus, and it's selling it to people for money. You know, Luther's incensed. He's like, what's going on? In response, Luther wrote what's famously become known as his 95 Thesis and nailed them to the door at the castle the door of the castle church in Wittenberg now that the church door basically was the normal notice board of the university so it was a normal place to, to, to post things um, so it was a normal thing to do if you wanted to announce something and these 95 theses were basically 95 statements he made condemning the excesses and corruption of the Roman Catholic Church especially the practice of asking for money for the forgiveness of sins. Luther believed, as we do, that forgiveness of sins only comes as a free gift through Jesus' death on the cross. His 95 theses were quickly reproduced via the printing press and spread 
very, very widely. And this started what's become known as the Reformation. He then wrote a, a series of further pamphlets, which highlighted many more abuses within the Catholic Church. And these two were widely produced via the printing press. Now, the Catholic Church tried to get, tried to, to get Luther to take, to take back what he said, to back down, but he refused to do so. And in, in 1521, they declared him a heretic and he was excommunicated from the church. Now, what Luther did was he got a he made a bonfire. And when they delivered the letter that told him he was excommunicated, he got a bunch of his supporters. They made a bonfire and they burnt the letter saying he was excommunicated. It was kind of almost a sign, sign of defiance. You know, I'm standing here, I'm doing this. That same year, Luther again refused to back down over his writings before the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V of Germany. And he was there at this kind of conference that had been set up to talk about this. And, and, and he famously, he, he stands before Charles V and he says, here I stand, I can do no other. Basically saying, no, I'm not going to back down at all. You do what you want to me, but I'm not backing down. In response, Charles V declared Luther an outlaw and a heretic uh, and gave permission. Basically what that meant when someone was declared an outlaw and a heretic, that gave anyone permission to kill him without consequence. So if someone went up, went up to Luther and just killed him in cold blood, there would be no consequence because he had been declared an outlaw and a heretic. Now, it looked like Luther was going to be executed at this kind of conference where he had to appear before the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, but what happened was a German prince who liked Luther abducted him from this conference and hid him away in one of his castles for a year. Um, and I visited there a couple of years ago. And, and it's there in this castle where he was kind of under house arrest. He was given a false name. So no one knew he was there. And there they give him some pens, uh, some, some writing equipment. And there he translated the New Testament into German. Basically, this German prince had put him there to just let things die down a bit. And he translated the New Testament into German, which was a hugely significant thing. Because up to that point, the Bible was only ever available in Latin. Normal people couldn't read Latin. So only the clergy could read the Bible. You know, so only the clergy could say, this is what the Bible says. And nobody could argue with them because they couldn't read Latin. But Luther's like, no, I'm going to put this Bible into the common language of the people. I'm going to put it into German. Luther translating the Bible into German meant that common people could now read the Bible for themselves. And be like, yeah, it doesn't say that. Or yeah, it does say that. And I remember visiting the castle, Wartburg Castle in Germany, just two years ago, where Luther translated that. And like, you know, you all these tourists there, and I'm there like an absolute church historian nerd. Just this room where Luther has translated them. I'm like, wow, this is so good. It's just a normal room with a desk on it, you know. And that's that's where he that's where he did it. And I'm like, wow, so cool. Anyway, good place to visit. So after spending a year translating the New Testament, he returned to Wittenberg and he set about a series of reforms. He abolished bishops and celibacy. You know, he got married himself. He gave people wine as well as bread at communion, because up to that point, only the clergy got the wine. The people just got bread. Um, the clergy got both. People just got bread. But he changed that, gave everyone wine and bread at communion. He shifted the emphasis in church services from the mass, from communion. He shifted emphasis from the mass to preaching. The preaching was kind of more focal and more centered, you know, the preaching of God's word. This is what we're centering on. And these reforms and many others spread across Europe. And in 1529, Charles V put pressure on the princes of Germany to crack down on Lutheran teaching. And many of the princes who now followed Luther's teachings protested against this, but there's pressure coming from Charles V, which is where we get the term Protestant from. These princes protested against Charles telling them to crack down on Luther, and they became known as Protestants, Protestants. And soon this came to refer to anyone who followed Luther's teachings. Now, Luther's biggest contribution to Christianity was the answers he gave to four basic questions. The first is, how is a person saved? Luther says, not by works, but by faith alone, straight from the Bible. OK, that was big. Second question, Luther said, where does religious authority lie? Luther said, not in the, the visible institution called the church, but in the word of God found in the Bible. You know, we use the Bible to judge the church. We don't use the church to judge the Bible. 
Third question, what is the church? Luther said, the whole community of Christian believers, since all are priests before God. So we got rid of this whole separation, you know, priests and laities. No, we're all followers of Jesus. We're all disciples, you know, the priesthood of all believers, that's called. And then the third key question that Luther answered was, what is the essence of Christian living? And he answered that by saying, it's about serving God in any useful calling, whether ordained or so those are Luther's biggest contributions, the questions he gave, the answers he gave to those four questions. How is a person saved? Where does religious authority lie? What is the church? And what is the essence of Christian living? Now, Luther is so, so important because he pretty much came along and said to the church, I've read the Bible and it says you've been doing it wrong for the last a thousand years. Now, <laughs> it takes some guts to say that. But what's more, what he was saying was not only he said to the church, I've read the Bible, and you've got it wrong for the last, last thousand years. But what's more, for a thousand years, European society had been built on the established church. So he wasn't just taking on the church, but the entire European establishment of the time. It takes some serious guts to do that. And that is why Luther, despite not being perfect, goes down as one of the most important people in all of history. Now, around the time of Luther, a group arose who believed Luther didn't go far enough in his reforms. As they read their Bibles, they realized that people in the Bible were baptized as believers, as adults, not as babies, as was common practice then. And so they... They, they, they stopped baptizing their babies and they started baptizing adults upon profession of, of faith. Now, baptizing babies was something that kind of started around the year 100 and kind of became kind of common practice by about the year 300. But these people here in the 1500s are like, well, wow, why do we do this? Then we should be baptizing believers as adults in profession of faith. So they, they stopped baptizing their babies and started baptizing adults upon profession of faith. And because of this, they, they were given the name Anabaptists, which means rebaptizer. But they were severely persecuted for doing this. Um, and in, in Zurich on the 5th of January, 1527, the first Anabaptist, a guy called Felix Mans, was executed. And you'll never guess what the method was chosen for execution. For someone who believes in full immersion baptism, of course, the method they chose to execute him was they drowned him in the river, thinking, yeah, you want water, we'll give you water. He was the first, first person executed of the Anabaptists. And during the Reformation, a further four to 5,000 Anabaptists were executed just for believing in believer's baptism. So, you know, something, you know, so standard and commonly believed today. The Anabaptists believed in discipleship. Being a Christian involves a daily walk with the Lord. They believed in congregational leadership and separation of church and state. All things that we take for granted today. But these things were revolutionary at the time. And many Anabaptists paid for these beliefs with their lives. Now, after Luther, John Calvin is the second most important person in the Reformation, in my opinion. Now, John Calvin was a, was a French university scholar who around the time uh, the Anabaptists were being martyred, he got saved and he devoted his life to the Protestant cause in France. And after fleeing Paris in 1533, he settled in the Swiss city of Basel. And in March 1536, he published a book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Now, this is the clearest explanation of Protestant doctrine that the Reformation age produced. And it, and it basically made the 27-year-old John Calvin instantly famous across Europe overnight. He was huge. Not long after that, he had to flee again and ended up in the Swiss city of Geneva, and there he was made professor of sacred scriptures. And he, he set about making Geneva into a Protestant city. He wrote a confession of faith that everyone in the city had to sign who wanted to be a citizen of Geneva. And then he set up a rigorous program of moral discipline for everyone in the city. 
Now, Calvin established what is called the Reformed tradition of Christianity. Now, he and Luther agreed on pretty much most things, but their difference was that they just emphasized different things more. Luther always emphasized justification by faith. You know, that was his big thing. Calvin emphasized the sovereignty of God. You know, the fact that God is in control and has a purpose. Calvin focused on the, the doctrine of predestination, you know, the idea from Ephesians that God chooses to save people. And he considered it a deep source of, of confidence and humility. Now, Calvin was also very into bringing the kingdom of God to earth. He believed that Christians should aspire to holiness and live upright lives. And many people at this time came from across Europe to see Calvin's Geneva, and they exported his ideas back to their homelands. And it, it spread to France. French Calvinists became known as Huguenots, and they included many of the elites of French society. And, and basically, these, these Huguenots, these elites of French society, become reformed Protestants. They were basically moving the nation of France towards becoming a Protestant country. Until, that is all until, one day in 1572, when thousands of Huguenots were brutally killed by a Catholic mob. And this day has become known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Basically, all these elites who become reformed Protestants and were moving France towards being a Protestant country, they basically were all killed in a day. So all the people who were moving France toward Protestantism were just all gone in a day, just all massacred. But for this day, France would probably now be a Protestant country. But as we know, it is very much a Catholic country to this day. Calvinism also took root in the Netherlands and in Scotland under a firebrand preacher called John Knox. And by the 1560s, Scotland had become the most Calvinist country in the world under John Knox's leadership. And the effect of Calvinism can be seen in the fact that the Netherlands and Scotland are still Protestant countries even to this day. Now, let's talk about England, where we are. Now, around this time, the Reformation arrived in England in quite an unusual way. Basically, in 1525, the king, Henry VIII, wanted to divorce his wife. Now, we're all kind of going back into our you know, GCSE history now here. He wanted to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, and marry a younger woman called Anne Boleyn. Now, the only person who could grant a divorce back then, though, was the Pope. So Henry asked the Pope to declare his marriage to Catherine invalid. The Pope said, no. Uh, basically, I think his, Catherine of Aragon was kind of a relative, so it just wasn't going to happen. Henry was pretty peeved, so instead he got an English court to declare his marriage to Catherine null and void. And in 1533, he married Anne Boleyn. The Pope responded to Henry by excommunicating him. And Henry, well, he didn't really seem too bothered, though. And he just passed a law making himself the head of the church instead of the Pope. It's kind of like, OK, job done, sorted. So apart from replacing the Pope with himself as the head of the church, Henry didn't really change any of the any of the, the church's beliefs or theology. He kept the church very much the same. So in that sense, the Reformation's principles hadn't arrived in England yet. The, the only two things he did change, the only thing, two things Henry VIII did change when he, when he became head of the church was he closed down lots of the English monasteries and took their land for himself to make himself a bit richer. And he also published an English Bible for use in churches. Now that had never been done before. Up to that point, having a Bible in English in churches, that was forbidden. But I think that's too dangerous. Giving people the Bible in their own language, who knows what could happen, you know? So, but, but he was like, no, I'm going to do this. Now, the way Henry came to publish an English Bible has a very interesting story, okay? So the pioneer in the translation of the Bible into English was a guy called William Tyndale. Now, William Tyndale translated the Bible into English, and in the 1520s, so uh, just before Henry was there, he smuggled copies of the Bible into England from the continent because by that stage it was still illegal to have the Bible in English. Now, this wasn't allowed by the authorities. And eventually, William Tyndale was caught and he was imprisoned and he was executed. OK, so this is in the 1520s. He was executed for translating the Bible into English so people could read it. 
And his dying prayer, I kid you not, his dying prayer as he's being executed in the 1520s was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And it wasn't long until his prayer was answered. A year, one year after Tyndale's killed for translating the Bible into English, someone made some edits to his translation and republished it. And the Archbishop Thomas Cranmer said to King Henry that he should authorize this Bible for use in all churches. And he did. I mean, what an answer to prayer, you know, like one year later, pretty much William Tyndale's Bible is just taken to the king and the king stamps and says, yeah, get this out to all the churches. And that was it. It was named the Great Bible. And, and, and an English Bible was put in every church in England. Now, apparently, the sudden access to the Bible in their own language for the first time caused so much excitement that Henry had to issue new regulations limiting the reading of the Bible to wealthy merchants and aristocrats. They were like, oh, no, people are getting too excited. Oh, let, let's limit this. We need to put some laws. You think, oh, it's crazy. But anyway, that's what they had to do. But this was a huge development before the Bible was only available in Latin. So only the clergy could read it, could tell the people whatever they thought, whatever they wanted it to say. But now everyone had access to the Bible. Now, before long, a new movement began in England and they were called the Puritans. Now, the Puritans took seriously what they read in the Bible and they tried to live their lives by it. They believed you had to have a conversion experience to become a Christian. They believed you weren't just baptized as a baby into it. You know, it was a decision you had to make. They believed the Bible was a guidebook to live your life by. And they, they believed in trying to construct a society based on the Bible. Now, it sounds a lot like what you and I believe. And that's because it is what you and I believe. You know, Puritans, a lot of what they believe, similar to us. Now, in 1604, um, they asked King James for a new translation of the Bible. And the result was the King James version of the Bible. But life began to get difficult for the Puritans in England. So in the early 1600s, a group of them moved to Holland. Now, this group couldn't find babies getting baptized in the Bible anywhere, so they started baptizing believers instead. And in, in 1609, their, their pastor baptized himself and his congregation of 40, and they became the first Baptist church. And in 1620, another group of about 100 Puritans set sail from England in a ship called the Mayflower. And you've probably heard of that. Um, two months later, they arrived in America, the first European settlers. Now, not the first people there. The Native American Indians were also there and other people groups. But these were the first European settlers there. Settlers there. And they were able to live according to their beliefs without being persecuted by the authorities. Now, the Catholic Church did fight back against the revolution across Europe with what became known as the Counter-Reformation, where they addressed a number of the abuses within the Catholic Church, and they also formed the Jesuit movement. Now, the Jesuits were like the Catholic super missionaries. They're like, you know, like the SAS of Catholicism. You know, these were the guys you went in to like really sort out stuff. Um, and these were well-trained Catholic missionaries who were intensely loyal to the Pope. And they promised to go wherever the Pope would send them. And, and what they did was they halted the growing tide of Protestantism in France and Central Europe. And they were also very influential at the Catholic Council of Trent in 1545, which reiterated all the core Catholic doctrines, such as saints, confession, indulgences, and, and seven sacraments. And the Council of Trent also rejected everything from the Reformation and ensured that there would be no accommodation with Protestants. You know, there'd be no kind of meeting in the middle, no half, no, you're not going to join. No, there's going to, there's going to be separation. We're different. This ensured that the Catholic Church wouldn't just cave and become Protestant, but that there would be a permanent divided church, Catholic on the one side, Protestant on the other. But this Catholic resurgence wasn't only being felt in Europe, about 20 years before the Reformation began in 1492, Christopher Columbus landed in what we know today as the West Indies. Now, historians describe the next 150 years as the age of discovery, as, as Europeans, mainly the Catholic, Spanish and Portuguese, conquered the Americas. So in 1521, okay, so this was again, Martin Luther was doing his thing. In 1521, the great Aztec Empire of Mexico was defeated. And in 1533, the Incas had been defeated too. 
And the Spanish and Portuguese conquerors, they felt it was their obligation to spread the word of God. So, so they would not only bring armies and guns when they conquered places, they would also bring priests and missionaries to evangelize the so-called newly conquered people groups too. Now, it's important to understand that all this was happening during the lifetime of Martin Luther. So on one hand, while Catholicism was under threat in Europe, it was gaining many new converts in the Americas, but also in India, Japan and China as Portuguese trading ships reached these places and brought Catholic missionaries with them. But particularly in the Americas, the, the methods used to convert people was, was somewhat questionable, shall we say. You know, more often than not, Spanish soldiers would basically get a bunch of indigenous people, point their guns at them and pretty much say, you know, convert to Christianity or we'll shoot you. You know, and I was like, yep, we're Christians. You know, it's like, well, how genuine is that? I'm not so sure if that's the best way. <laughs> but that, a lot of times that's what happened. So it was a kind of messy kind of thing. Not exactly the methodology that Jesus had in mind when he said, go make disciples of all nations, you know. Um, but that's what was happening. So the Reformation rediscovered the authority of the Bible, which had been lost for a thousand years. So many of the things we take for granted as believers today were re so many of the things we take for granted today as believers were rediscovered during the Reformation. And these rediscoveries came at a great cost to many people. The Reformation started quite simply because people started to read the Bible again. And I don't know, for me, writing this, you know, and I just look at my Bible sitting here thinking, you know, people give their lives to give me an English version, an English translation of this book. So it makes me think, you know, I should probably read it a bit more, you know, I should appreciate it a bit more. This is, you know, a lot of people gave their lives to give me this. So, yeah, it's something I've just, I appreciate it when I, when I look at church history. But if the Reformation teaches us anything, I think really it teaches us, let's read this book. Let's read the Bible, you know, if it teaches anything, it teaches us that. So this brings us to the end of the Reformation era from 1517 to 1648 i am going let me see where are we? there are some at the end of it. so what have we got questions what books would you recommend for us to read yes there are some at the end i'll get to those at the end thank you andy i am going to do a breakout room five minute breakout room okay now here's what i want you to discuss you might not even need to write it down okay which part of church history we've just covered would you most like to have lived in and which part would you have least liked to have lived in and discuss why so i'm going to put you in breakout rooms which part would you have most liked to have lived in and why which part would you have least liked to have lived in of church history and you can't say the present day because we haven't got there yet so it's just what we've covered which part of church history would you most like to have lived in and which part would you least like to have lived in so i'm going to stick you in breakout room for five minutes and then we'll come back and we'll 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 come into land and finish. Welcome back, everyone. Anybody want to share what what period of church history would they most like to have lived in, and what period would they least like to have lived in? Not mute yourself and shout out. Feel free to share. Anyone, uh, what what period of church history would you have most like to have lived in? What would you have least like to have lived in? Just share with everyone. You unmute yourself and share. It'd be great. I want to say I'm very passionate about the 95 Theses. That's like what I want to make very clear. So that would have been pretty cool. And also your story about actually seeing where Martin Luther like translated the Bible. I think I would have actually cried if I saw that. So <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's actually a lovely castle to visit just as a castle. Lovely view. Really nice place. So anyone else, where would you most like to have kind of gone in church history and least like to have gone? All bad. All bad. Um, I think, you know, um, for me, it's like horrible histories. You know, if you look at the Reformation, start of the wars across Europe, 50% of the population of Europe died in the wars after the Reformation. There were a lot of wars, yes. The 30 Years' War being one of the one of the most gruesome ones, yeah. Well, you got, uh, you know, all of the people standing up in the face of severe persecution, standing on bonfires, um, refusing to, uh, you know, deny their faith or being set fire to by... Romans or whatever it is, it's like uh, just kind of thank you, lucky stars that we're born now, and that we do have access to something that is that is 
faithfully translated and is the truth and we don't have to read the rubbish in the newspapers we can just pick up our bible and uh know that one keith, thing we, one thing we can count on you're basically yeah. saying keith you're happy to be around now absolutely absolutely I, I don't want to go back in time no. <laughs> yeah. but, but china china wouldn't say that would they china uh, christians in china are being persecuted right now as we speak aren't they that's, yeah, that's it's a terrible true. time for them yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to get to that now i think the next this next phase of church history it, it becomes a little bit more difficult because christianity has obviously spread so much that i mean you could spend any amount of time focus you know focusing on so it becomes we're dotting around quite a bit a lot more i think you know you could spend an hour or two talking about christianity spread in africa or in asia or in you know in any continent really so it's it's a little bit of i'm trying to to give us a little bit of a flavor of what's happening um so yeah there's a little bit of you know why did you talk about this and not this i get that so um but we're gonna we're gonna cover the final bit modern church 1648 to the present day where we see a lot of mission and revival see a lot of people getting getting saved during uh this during this uh time so basically, in the, in the mid 1600s, a, a new movement began called the Enlightenment. You've probably heard of that. It was a it was a completely new way of looking at God and looking at the world and looking at ourselves, which led to the start of secularism. Now, the Middle Ages and the Reformation had been ages of faith, whereas the Enlightenment kind of rejected that. It, it, reason replaced faith as the most important thing. See, Enlightenment thinking grew from three areas. It grew from the Renaissance, which means rebirth, which birthed a real confidence in man and his powers and what he could achieve. Uh, it, it also grew because people kind of had grew sick of the appalling religious conflicts that had kind of begun after the Reformation that Keith just talked about there. We're talking about the Thirty Years' War, you know, all these princes and different people who believe different theological thing they'll get their army they'll fight each other we're starting to get a bit sick of this all this bloodshed that that, 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 that was happening in the 1600s and then um, also the kind of the rise of science and discovery uh, also and the enlightenment thinking grew from the, the, the rise of science and discovery as well uh, for example copernicus you know finding out that the sun is the center not the earth of the solar system and kepler finding out that the sun emitted a magnetic force that moved the planets galileo you know who made the first telescope to see the planets and, and newton discovering gravity you now these discoveries turned people's worldviews on their head and what they also did was they created a new belief in human reason you know, the whole idea that, you know what, we can figure this whole thing out ourselves. You know, we don't really need God. Like if we can discover gravity and figure out the solar system, maybe we can sort this all out ourselves. And this whole, this whole idea began to grow. Now for 1,200 years, the general consensus in society was that man was a sinner, needed the grace of God, and that was dispensed through the church and, and the job of the state was to uphold truth, you know, of the church and punish error. Now, what was beginning to happen was people were starting to believe, no, you know what? I don't know if men are all sinners. Um, and actually, maybe people don't just need God's grace. Maybe they just need common sense. Maybe they just need some education. Maybe that's what they, maybe that's the answer. Education and common sense is the answer rather than God's grace. And these ideas were kind of formed and kind of promulgated by people like John Locke and Voltaire and Dennis Diderot. And, and unlike previous critics of the church, these, these men made their criticism from outside of the church. You know, they didn't believe in God. They weren't part of the church in that sense. Whereas previously, all criticism of the church had been from within. There were people who were in the church, who were going to church, who were part of a church. But now they're, they're making the criticism from outside of it. And this was a huge shift in worldview. Generally, people had always believed in God. You know, if you didn't believe in God in the Middle Ages, you know, the word for that was just weird. You know, of course, everybody believes it. it was just the general accepted societal belief. There is a God. That's true. But now this was all changing. And on the European continent around this time, a movement began called pietism. 
Now, pietists believed in personal faith, Bible study, evangelism, and, and moving away from state churches to fellowships of those who had, had living faith in God. And one man influenced by the pietist was a guy called Nicholas Count von Zinzendorf. What a great name. I had fun learning how to spell that as a kid in school, I imagine. But yeah, Nicholas Count von Zinzendorf. He, uh, he allowed a group of pietists to live on his land and they formed a kind of monastic community uh, with kind of basically were monks without the celibacy, really. They did everything else. And they were given the name Moravians and they had a real focus on prayer. And basically the modern 24-7 prayer movement that we hear so much about, Pete Craig talks about it, this looks to the Moravians for much of their inspiration. And they had an intense missionary desire, sending missionaries all over the world. And, and pietism has shaped much of how we live out our Christian faith today. Now, someone who was very influenced by the pietists was a Church of England minister called John Wesley. Now, Wesley started a movement in England, which we've probably all heard of. That movement is called Methodism, which uh, and what was revolutionary about this movement was that it was it was kind of centered around prayer, Bible reading, evangelism and discipleship. And they would have these series of little discipleship questions that meet in groups and ask each other these questions to keep each other accountable. Because basically up to this point, the, the church had always been very top down. You know, the vicar does this, tells you what to do, and that's it. Whereas Methodism was very much a movement of the people coming together to learn, to mentor each other, to discover new things about the Bible and to live it out. And they would encourage each other to take responsibility for their own walks with God. Now, Wesley studied at Oxford. And him and his brother Charles formed a little group at Oxford who took their faith very seriously. They read their Bible, they prayed, and, and people ridiculed them. And they gave them mocking names such as Bible moths. And they called their little group, oh, that's the Reforming Club, and uh, mocking names like that. And one of the mocking names that they were given by the people ridiculing them was Methodists. And the Methodist name stuck. And after being ordained, Wesley was asked to, to become a vicar. So he was still in the Church of England at this point. Wesley was asked to become a vicar of a church in America. And he went and uh, John Wesley went out there. But, but he was very strict as a minister, John Wesley. And his strictness was unpopular among his congregation in America. And then things took a turn for the worse. He, he had an affair with a woman. Uh, from his church she left him and then married another guy so John Wesley hit back at her by barring her from communion um, and then her new husband sued John Wesley for barring her from communion and there was a long trial and it was just a complete mess and basically long and short of it John Wesley returned to England a bit of a battered, broken man, just, just didn't know where he was, really. And then in February 1738, a few months later, he had a real spiritual awakening. He got an incredible assurance at a, at a meeting he was at of who he was in Christ. And through this and the, the encouragement of his friend, fellow, fellow preacher George Whitfield, Wesley set about preaching the gospel everywhere he could. He had this profound encounter with God, which just changed him from this strict, staid Church of England minister to one who just was about preaching the gospel everywhere he could. He would preach the gospel indoors. He would preach the gospel outdoors. Wherever people would listen, he would preach the gospel. When he showed up at his old church, they wouldn't let him in. They refused him entry to his, his old church, the church that he'd grown up in. So he walked into the graveyard, stood on top of his dad's gravestone in the church graveyard and preached to hundreds of people there in the church graveyard. And that was one way to do it. You know, church doesn't let you in, hit the graveyard. Don't, you're not going to offend anyone because you're standing on your own dad's grave. You know, it's nobody else's. So and preached to hundreds. It's estimated that in his lifetime, uh, uh, John Wesley covered 250,000 miles on horseback preaching wherever he could. Now, it has to be said, I did say it right at the start, he wasn't easy to live with. You know, he wasn't perfect. He was married, but after two years, his wife, she left him. She couldn't just couldn't couldn't deal with it. But by the time he died, there were 79,000 Methodists in England and 40,000 Methodists in America. That's pretty good going. And the Methodist Church still exists 
to this day. Now, while all this was happening in England, a spiritual awakening was happening in America too. And this was called the Great Awakening. And it began in the in 1720s. Some pastors in New Jersey and Pennsylvania started seeing a lot of conversions. And then it spread to Virginia and the Carolinas and eventually to Massachusetts. And the Great Awakening soon turned into a full-on revival when in 1739, when, when, when English preacher George Whitfield came across from England and did a preaching tour around the New England states. And before long, 20, well, we reckon between 25 and 50,000 people had got saved in the New England states alone. And this led to a series of further revivals and awakenings in America and in the UK over the next 150 years. Now, despite the beginnings of the Enlightenment, revivals in England and America meant that thousands of people came to Christ in the 1700s. And this missionary focus would increase in the 1800s, as well as a new focus on social justice. So now let's Look at this little section. I think you have in your notes 1789 to 1914, social justice and mission. Now, in the late 1700s, uh, a group of a small group of influential Christian leaders began regularly getting together in the small village of Clapham outside London just to discuss what was wrong with the world and what they could do about it. Now, this little group was led by an MP called William Wilberforce. And this group tackled lots of issues, the most famous of which was slavery. Now, in 1770, of the 100,000 slaves transported from West Africa each year, Britain transported half of them, 50,000 every year. And many people in Britain made a lot of money from it. So in, in 1789, Wilberforce began campaigning to end slavery. Now, it, it's worth saying, it wasn't, he, didn't, he wasn't the first person who said, right, we're going to end slavery. There were many other people who were working on this, who'd been tirelessly campaigning for this. Um, there's a guy called Ulida Equiano. He, had, he, had actually, he was, a, he was a, a freed slave himself who actually wrote an account of what it's like to be a slave. This was very effective in terms of changing people's minds on slavery. Another guy called Ignatius Sancho, he wrote many letters to people, you know, powerful people to try and persuade them to end slavery. Hannah Moore was another uh, reformer in the, in, the, in, the, in the abolition of slavery movement. But William, William Wilberforce tends to get all the kudos and the credit uh, because he's, he was kind of famous, he was an MP and he, he delivered the speeches, but there's a lot of people who put a lot of work into this to see slavery ended. Um, but it basically in 1789, Wilberforce, he's campaigning to end slavery, but and for over 40 years, he tirelessly campaigned for the ending of, of slavery, as did many other people. And on the 25th of July in 1833, Parliament passed the Emancipation Act freeing all slaves in the British Empire. Wilberforce had been delivering speech after speech after speech in, in, the, house, in the Houses of Parliament, encouraging people to get rid of slavery, stop slavery, stop slavery, and nobody ever listened to him because people were making so much money from it. And he kept doing it. And, and, and for 40 years, it felt like it was just banging his head on a brick wall. But eventually, on 1833, Parliament passed the Emancipation Act, freeing all slaves, and Wilberforce dies four days later it's almost like it's almost like his life's work you know had been achieved it was hugely significant that britain getting rid of of slavery abolishing slavery is hugely significant because of what was just about to happen because european powers were just about to basically carve up africa and take all these bits of africa for themselves now the fact that slavery had been abolished before they did this made sure that slavery would play no part in the areas controlled by Britain. So Wilberforce and his friends were motivated by their Christian faith to fight against injustice and stand up for the oppressed and the poor, as were many other reformers at that time. And poverty in England, poverty in England was a big problem at this time. You know, many Christians, such as George Muller and Charles Haddon Spurgeon, set up orphanages this time to, to rescue destitute street children. Poverty was particularly bad in London. In London in 1890, it was recorded that 2,157 people had been found dead in one year. 2,297 had committed suicide. 30,000 people were living in prostitution. 
160,000 people in London then were convicted of drunkenness and more than 900,000 people were classed as paupers, basically the poorest of the poor. And a man called William Booth uh, was just you know, drawn to help London's poor. You know, he saw this, I've got to do something. And his, his street preaching in the 1880s saw many people get saved. And within 11 years, he had, he had 32 centres or stations doing evangelism and helping the poor in London. And his workers were really well organised. They organised themselves kind of like an army. And they were soon given the name, the, you all know, the Salvation Army. And William Booth was given the name General Booth. And by the late 1800s, he had established a thousand of these stations and sent people to many other nations to help the poorest of the poor to preach the gospel. Now, the 1800s also saw the growth of the, the Christian missionary movement. Now, the guy who started this missionary movement uh, was, was called William Carey. He's regarded as the father of the modern day missionary movement. Now, William Carey was a very poor shoemaker and he actually learned Greek and Hebrew in, in breaks while he was making shoes as a shoemaker. And he, and he managed to get a map of the world and stuck it up in his workshop so he could look at and pray for the nations that they would get saved. Um, and he had a real passion to see the gospel go to other nations. Now, in the late 1700s, people, Christians didn't believe generally that they should take the gospel to foreign lands. You know, they, they just thought like, the gospel is not for them, people, the heathens. No, it was almost like, no, we don't do that. That's not what we do. And just, you can see this because at, at a Baptist minister's meeting in the late 1700s, Kerry, Kerry, William Carey, he stood up and argued that they should take the gospel to the nations. And an older minister, while William Carey was up speaking, stood up and said, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. And we've basically, we've basically just said to William Carey, sit down, shut up, stop, stop trying to convince us to take the gospel to the nations. And that was, that was a widespread attitude. So in, 19, in 1792, William Carey, he published this little book called An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. In my opinion, he needs to shorten that title. But basically, the, the book basically knocked down the five objections people had to taking the gospel to the world. And the common objections Christians had then was distance, barbarism, they're barbaric people, danger, difficulties to support, and language barriers. Those were the barriers that people had saying, no, 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 we're not going there. And he just knocked them all down and said, no, we've got to go. We've got to take the gospel to these people. So he started his own missionary society. And in his first sermon, he preached before going. He said this famous line, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And then he left for India and he went to a city called Sarampore. And for 25 years, he worked on producing translations of, of the Bible. And he produced six complete translations of the Bible in, in six different Indian languages and 25 partial translations into new languages. And many others were so inspired by his example, they followed in his footsteps and became missionaries in foreign countries. And that's why people say that Carey, William Carey began the modern day mission movement, because before him, churches in England, in Britain, were not involved in missions, foreign mission at all. Whereas after him, supporting foreign missions had become just a normal part of church life. You, know, you had your collection for foreign missionaries that just became a normal part of church life. William Carey changed the whole outlook towards foreign mission. He put the gospel back to the center and unified Christendom around reaching the lost now just to mention this is kind of a little bit off piece just right at the beginning of the 1900s in 1906 something very significant happened in los angeles in a little in a little street in los angeles called azusa street there was a, a black preacher called william seymour he'd only one eye a one-eyed black preacher son of a slave begins preaching uh, and, and he begins preaching about about the gifts of the spirit begins preaching about the holy spirit begins to preach and say that actually there's something that happens after you become a christian almost uh, called the baptism of the holy spirit and when you get that you start to speak in tongues 
Uh, and this was becoming a big thing. Lots of people were coming to hear him, were getting saved, and were, were speaking in tongues. And outsiders were like, what is going on? What is all this babble? What is this craziness? But it spread, and it led to numbers of Pentecostal denominations, because going back to Pentecost, Pentecostal denominations starting up, like Assemblies of God, and basically, this little meeting in, in, in 1906 began the modern-day Pentecostal movement. Um, and, and that, in turn, and we'll talk about this in a few moments, led into the charismatic movement, which kind of came out in the 1960s. Okay, so the 1700s and 1800s uh, and, uh, saw a move away from the clergy doing everything to average people stepping up and preaching the gospel. And William Seymour is an example of that. Just this normal guy comes, starts preaching the gospel, people get saved. So let's have a look. 1914 to the present day, Christianity expands globally. Now, we all probably know what happened in 1914. Well, maybe we don't actually. 1914, start of the First World War. Now, the first half of the, of the 20th century, saw severe persecution of Christians by, by nationalism, social nationalism, and, and communism. For the first time in 500 years, it didn't matter if you were Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, whatever, you got persecuted just the same as everybody else. You know, persecution was particularly brutal in Stalin's Soviet Union and in Nazi Germany. And, and they didn't care if you're Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, whatever. If you had an, an ideology that was other than theirs, if you followed something that was other than them, you were getting persecuted. And in the early 1900s, the, the liberal idea that had grown over the 1800s, that of the good of man and progress, that had been growing in strength. People began to believe that the, the more educated and cultured people became, the more society would progress to the point where wars would no longer happen and religion would no longer be needed. Now, this idea grew in strength until the First and Second World Wars happened, and they blew these ideas out of the water because these wars were the bloodiest conflicts our world has ever known. And they, these wars happened not amongst you know, primitive peoples or whatever. It, it didn't, they didn't happen amongst primitive peoples in the distant past, but they happened in the developed world of the 20th century in so-called Christian countries. 85 million people died in World War II alone. That was 3% of the world's population back then died in World War II. The idea of the progress of man was dead. You know, the, the aftermath of the Second World War alone left people with just so many questions. Like, if man was supposed to be progressing, why has this happened? People were looking for real hope. And two figures, two, two figures played important roles in providing this hope after the Second World War. One was the English writer C.S. Lewis, and the other was the American evangelist Billy Graham. Now, Lewis, in a series of lectures on the BBC just after the Second World War, renewed people's hope after the disillusionment of World War II by, by pointing them to Jesus. And these lectures were soon turned into a book, which many of you may have read. The book is called Mere Christianity. Still very influential book today. Brilliant book. Do, do try and read it. And around this time, American evangelist Billy Graham began large-scale preaching tours, eventually filling stadiums of people right across the world who came to hear him preach. And he called these tours Crusades. And over the next 60 years, he held over 400 of these crusades, preaching to 215 million people in person in 185 countries across the world. I mean, there only are about 200 countries in the world, so like pretty much all the countries in the world, as well as to over a billion people through TV and radio. Billy Graham preached the gospel to more people than anyone else in history. Through his ministry, millions of people across the world were saved, which renewed and strengthened the church across the world. Now, the post-war era also saw reforms in the Catholic Church. In 1958, the Pope, call, Pope called a church council called Vatican II with the aim of bringing the Catholic Church up to date. And many changes came as a result. One of the changes was that the altar in Catholic Church was brought forward closer to the people. Another change was that priests now faced the congregation when delivering mass and services. And, and 
And mass and services could now be conducted in people's own language instead of in Latin, which had been the case up to that point. Now, in the 60s and 70s, the rise of secularism, the kind of rejection of religion, hit traditional Protestant denominations pretty hard. Church attendance in many of these denominations plummeted during this time. And by contrast, evangelical churches, churches centered on the gospel of salvation by, by grace through Jesus, as well as charismatic and Pentecostal churches, flourished at this time. They grew, grew, grew. And when these churches were asked why they thought they were growing, they generally responded with three answers. The first reason they thought they were growing was that they're being faithful to the Bible. Secondly, they were giving solid answers to life's big questions. And thirdly, they were efficiently organized. So when, when evangelical, Pentecostal, and charismatic churches were asked, why are you growing so much? It's like, we're being faithful to the Bible, we're giving solid answers to life's big questions, and we're being efficiently organized. That's what I would say. Now, during this time, mega churches started to emerge in America. These are large churches with great facilities and programs, often seeking to be more relevant to those not familiar with traditional church. And in the 1960s, also saw the charismatic renewal where lots of people discovered many of the gifts of the spirit, such as healing and prophecy and speaking in tongues. And this kind of led out of the Pentecostal movement that started back in 1906. And our denomination, New Frontiers, came out of this movement. But it wasn't the first great move of the spirit in the 20th century. Obviously, the Azusa Street revivals in LA in 1906, that, that saw the beginning of the modern-day Pentecostal movement. But the, the Vineyard movement, led by John Wimber in the 1980s, also kind of came out of this movement and had a big effect, particularly in the area of healing on the, on the Western church. And, and basically now, when you look at the, the global church, Pentecostals and Charismatics now make up a quarter of all Christians in the world, a quarter. Now, we've spent most of our time up to this point looking at Christianity in Europe. Um, I kind of do that a little bit because we're in Europe, um, not because Europe's more important than everywhere else, but we kind of connect with a lot of these places. But we must face the fact that Europe is no longer the center of Christianity anymore. It is no longer the center of Christianity anymore. And it's, and it's not America either. The 20th century has seen a global shift of Christianity to the south and to the east of the world. More Christians now worship in Anglican churches in Nigeria each week than in all the Anglican churches of Britain, Europe and North America combined. I mean, that's a mind blowing fact, isn't it? More Christians now worship in Anglican churches in Nigeria each week than in all the Anglican churches of Britain, Europe and North America combined. There are more Baptists in the Congo now than there are in Great Britain. In Africa, in, in 1900, year 1900, there were 10 million Christians. That's 9% of the, the, the population of the continent of Africa. In the year 2000, that number was 380 million, 46% of the population of the continent of Africa. In South Korea, in 1914, one in a hundred people were Christians. Now it's one in three. South Korea is, is home to the world's biggest churches. Yoido Full Gospel Church in South Korea is the world's biggest church with one million members. South Korea is also second only to the USA for the number of theological colleges it has and the number of missionaries it sends out. In China, someone mentioned China earlier, in China, the rate of Christian growth is just astonishing. There are now more people in church on Sunday in China than there are in all of Western Europe combined. Now, if the current Christian growth rate in China continues at its current levels, in 10 years, it will have more Christians than any other country in the world. Now, in China, they have this kind of back to Jerusalem movement. Uh, and basically, the, the, basically, the idea is that almost like Christianity, it's kind of, it, it started out in Israel and it kind of went spread loads towards Europe and then across to America. And then it's kind of gone, it's almost kind of gone around the world and then it's got to China. And they're kind of like, you know what, we want to complete the circle. We want to go from China back to Israel and just complete the whole circle, the back to Jerusalem movement. So a lot of Chinese believers are going to the Middle East, sharing the gospel, um, you know, paying the price for it. And, 
and, and their aim is to send 100,000 missionaries to 51 countries between China and Israel um, to see people get saved and get back to Jerusalem and just see massive evangelism. It's pretty exciting. Christianity is also growing in the Muslim world. Uh, David Garrison, in his book, Wind in the House of Islam, uh, talks about movements, okay? And he basically says a movement to Christ is when a thousand people get saved and baptized. When a thousand people get saved and baptized in an area, that's what we call a movement, a movement to the Lord. Or uh, if a hundred churches are planted in a region, that's a movement, okay? So either one of those, okay? Now, David Garrison says between 622 AD and 1800, so 622 to 1800, there were no movements to Christ in the Muslim world, okay? Between 1800 and 1980, there were two movements. That's 200 years. There were two movements to Christ in the Muslim world. So either a thousand believers getting saved and baptized in a, in a region or a, a hundred churches planted. He says between 1980 and, and 2000, there were 11 movements in the Muslim world, the Middle East, 11 movements, okay? And that's just a period of 20 years, there were 11 movements. And then he said from, from, the, from, from the year 2000 to the year 2013, there have been 69, just 13 years, 69 movements to Christ in the Muslim world. So either 69 movements where either a thousand people get saved and baptized or a hundred churches are planted in a region. That's pretty crazy growth, isn't it? Stuff's happening in the Muslim world. Why are so many Muslims coming to Christ in the Middle East? Well, firstly, the Bible is now available in the language of most Muslim people groups. Also, many Muslims are now experiencing dreams and visions, pointing them to Jesus. There's a guy who used to go to our church. He had exactly that, had a dream. There's a man in his dream in a white robe, tells him to read the Bible. He wakes up, goes, finds a Bible, reads it, finds a church, gets saved. Yeah, that, that's happening to a lot of people. Also, access to Christian media is having a big impact. You know, the Internet allows people to access Christian media all over the world. And more recently, a lot of the cultural baggage that has traditionally accompanied the gospel has been removed. Uh, so basically, the aim is, you know, the aim is to make disciples, not to make Americans. You know, that, a lot of that American baggage has been removed which has also really helped people. And also, I think also a lot of widespread disillusionment in the Middle East with Muslim extremism and violence, that's also played a factor. Christianity is spreading faster ever and ever. So there you have it. That is the church, the history of the church warts and all. It's not all of the history of the church. I don't claim that at all, but it's an overview. It's an overview. And hopefully, you know, you found that helpful uh, for you. I think for me, doing all the preparation for this has just reminded me of just how important it is, I think, to, to keep the gospel, you know, the good news of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, keeping that front and center in my life and in the church I lead. Because when we lose sight of the gospel, you know, as, as the church regularly did in church history, things got messy. But when we keep it at the center, People get saved, you know, lives get transformed. And, and what I find so encouraging about what we've studied today is that there's no perfect people, apart from you good people out there. There's no perfect people, you know, in this story. God uses weak and imperfect people to bring about his plan. And I don't know, for me, that's encouraging. It's encouraging for us all. All of us are part of this story. We all have a part to play. Um, and, you know, I was just reading recently, just, you know, in the newspaper, it's just story after bad story after bad story after bad story you know that the world can seem like it's in an awful state but you know studying church history the last few months has just reminded me that no matter how bad things look god is still control he still has a plan and he's working it out even when we can't see it and that's that's the good news isn't it that is the good news and yes as someone has put in here Andy that is a whistle stop tour of the church yes and we haven't stopped too many times have we no <laughs> thank you so much for um for listening I I did promise I'd do it so I'm going to do it really quickly I'm going to go through our timeline um of um yes timeline of events I said I would do that so we did that in our group earlier let me just flip through this so let's see. Let's go. Uh, first one is the Apostle Paul begins his missionary journeys. 
Yes, so that was in about 58 day. The next on our timeline is the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. That was in 70 AD. Then the canon is closed. Oh. Yeah. So generally decided upon about 170, but sort of 300, they kind of published their list. Then Constantine becomes the Roman emperor in 312. Then the next is the church splits into the Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches. That was one... Yes, one oh five. Yes, that's it. Someone's been taking notes. Yes, forgotten. Then the Crusades take place, 1095, just after the church splits, Orthodox and Roman. Then we have Martin Luther starts the Reformation, 1517. Then we have William Carey goes to India, which is the 1700s. And then finally, we have Billy Graham begins his Crusades, which was just after the Second World War, kind of 1945. And that is our timeline. Anybody get the timeline? A few people, a few people got the timeline. There are a few really close ones in there. The canon and Constantine, um, the church splitting and the crusades. Um, yes, great. Now, I did promise I'd say something about books. So I'll say something real quick. Um, so in your notes there, there are, I've put like kind of five books down there. Uh, I would say if you want, a, a one book volume of, of church history, Bruce Shelley's book, Church History in Plain Language. Great book, easy to read, doesn't, you know, doesn't take years to read. That, that was really helpful for me while doing the prep for this. So that's the second one on the list. Rodney Stark's Rise of Christianity is really interesting just for, that's the one where he's all the statistics about the growth. And he has a chapter on what it was like to live in first century Antioch. I mean, it just describes everything. I mean, you put you there. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, it was, it was horrific living in, you know, the squalor that was there, but a really good book, Rise of Christianity. His other book, Triumph of Christianity, is really good too. Rodney Starks, non-Christian non -Christian historian who basically, I think, through writing this history was like, yeah, there's, there's, there's something in this. This has got to be real. He's almost kind of become a Christian through studying it so it's kind of cool um then we have um tim Daly, introduction to the history of christianity that's one, that one's all right some nice pictures in that one then rich cornish five minute church historian this is one if you just want a really super quick go through of, of church history it's all these little five minute chapters really 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 nice it's the type of thing you could give a teenager and they'd really enjoy it so that's a good one but i would say probably the best set of books on church history if i was going to encourage you to read one would be nick needham's 2000 years of christ's power it's a five-part volume but it's not like academic language it's easy to read it's not you know you don't need a degree just to understand you know what he's saying it's, it, it's really good stuff so so i'd say the first two nick needham bruce Shelley, they would be really good books uh, uh, to read 